Welcome to the Body Electric Podcast, episode 11. My special guest today is the award-winning saxophonist and composer Sharantha Bedigay. He specializes on the baritone saxophone, though he's also a really great piano player. Uh, he's a prolific composer with two albums to his credit, with the third on the way featuring drummer Will Kennedy from the band uh, The Yellow Jackets. And he's the head of music theory and harmony at Humber College. Um, I've known Sharantha since the early 2000s when we were both undergraduate students at Humber, and uh, I had a wonderful time talking to him today. Um, If you'd like to contact the podcast, you can go to my website, nathanhiltz.com, or uh, get me on Twitter, uh, that's at natehiltz, N-A-T-E-H-I-L-T-Z. Thanks for listening. Have a good day. Hey, Sharantha, what's up, man? <laughs> great, how are you? Hello again. Yes. <laughs> yeah. How you doing? I'm great. Welcome. Welcome to Burlington. Thank you. It's beautiful to be here. <laughs> nice house you got. <laughs> Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. it's a good, uh, nice space to be in. Uh, it's, it's, it's really, really a treat. Yeah, I'm just great. getting used to getting settled in and it's, it's lovely. It's very peaceful. Like a month now? Yep. Yeah. Not even. Cool. Mm-hmm. Great, and we just had a fun rehearsal for our, for our gig this weekend. That's right, playing yeah. duo in St. Catharines on yeah. Sunday, so looking yeah. forward to it. Yeah. These tunes are, are challenging in a duo, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoy playing duo. I mean, it's, there's a certain freedom to it, of course, that, that is that is nice, but there's different ways of communicating that I, 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 I find are kind of unique. I, I really enjoy that texture. Mm. And you've got, probably gotten at that uh, from both sides uh, as a pianist and a saxophonist. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I really enjoy playing duo from from piano end as well. Just as an accompanying instrument, it's yeah. Again, there's a different kind of freedom and textural things that you can get into playing bass lines or whatever, and and playing melody or playing solos. It's 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 a versatile setting to be in as a comping instrument, which I I like. And, and mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I, oh yeah, I really a lot like of freedom, it. right? I mm-hmm. love the freedom. And um, are are you working as much on the piano as you are on saxophone, or mainly you're just Working on sax? Mostly, mostly saxophone. I mean, these days I, I play the piano more for fun and for composing purposes and for teaching too. I do a lot. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. most of my teaching is, is is done at the piano, especially in theory class and that kind of thing. But yeah, as a, as a compositional instrument, the piano is generally my go-to for that. Uh, these days, I'm I I've, I've never written from from the saxophone. I've always written either from the piano or just straight from my head to to paper. You know, mm. um, on the train or whatever it is, you know. Right. Um, and uh, I, for some reason, never, never had the urge to write from the instrument. I feel like I, pro- I probably hear the sounds that I want to make on the saxophone without necessarily having to 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 work it out on the horn. I could work it on on another instrument like the piano, and that's pretty good process for me. Right. Yeah. Right. Is do you find your vocabulary on the saxophone and the piano are the same, or is there a lot of difference there? Pro- probably there's a lot of similarities, um, but I mean I think these days just because I'm not practicing the piano as much, I don't I don't have the same facility you know that I would on on the saxophone. So it it it's a li- little limiting you mm. know on the on the piano from from that perspective. But but um, but yeah, I think there are a lot of similarities. I mean I started as a piano player. I started playing piano when I was five and and did classical for years and years. Did, you know did Royal Conservatory like a, like a lot of kids did and. And uh, and then I picked up the saxophone when I was in junior high, um, and uh, and then I tried to balance the two ever since. But yeah, I think my original influences coming from piano players like Bill Evans and Chicory and Herbie Hancock and these people that I really dug when I was you know starting out, 
they're probably filtered into the horn somewhere along the line too so mm -hmm. yeah i'm sure there's some overlap Mm. And I remember, like when we went to school together, yeah. I, I think you were one year, ahead, like I was a year ahead of you. Okay. You started two thousand, is that right, at Humber College? I was there for yeah, two years to two thousand oh two. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. I remember you being as much a pianist as a saxophone player, but I guess at a certain point, you sort of the horn became number one for you. Yeah, yeah. I think so. I think so. And and uh, I don't know why that is. I mean, I've I've always liked leading you know my own groups from from this voice I like the sound of the instrument um, but but the piano will always be I think my first love um, mm. it's just it's just not the priority for me now in terms of my, my practice time um, and, and for the kinds of gigs that I get called for too you know as a sideman I mean uh, it's 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 saxophone and other yeah. winds you know right so it just kind of happened naturally mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, from getting the chance to play some of your tunes, I can really tell, the, hear the pianist, pianistic influence. I mean, the harmony that's happening there. I mean, those guys you mentioned, I feel like that must be a really strong influence on you. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I feel that way as well. And, and yeah, because I write from, from the piano, I, I think if I'm writing parts for the piano player that have specific voicings, of course, I can, I can do that. And, and hopefully they'll be, you know, reasonably pianistic in a way. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, harmonically, a lot of the stuff that I, I, I think is a part of my tunes is coming from the language of, of, of composers that bridge the line between functional and non-functional harmony too. Mm -hmm. You know, some of my tonal pieces, I think, have chromatic elements that are a little outside that, that, that come back in. And some of my pieces that are non-functional have a lot of repetitive harmonic patterns like Joe Henderson, you know, things, I mean, I try to steal from the best, really, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. uh, it's something that I often try to do, so I, 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 uh, I think that those pianistic influences do, do come in, but especially from guys like Bill Evans. Right, right. Cool. Oh, well, why don't we play a tune? Great. Let's play one of your compositions. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Uh, you want to do, uh, Pushin'? Yeah, let's do it. Let's let me get the music stand here. So uh, when did you write this tune, Trantha? No, November 2010, I, it says. 2010, yeah, I think I was probably in the middle of gradually getting ready for my second record, mm -hmm. uh, which was in 2012. Um, those records, those two records, had about six years in between them, um, which was a long time for me. Um, for this record that I'm working on currently, I think there was maybe a three-year gap mm -hmm. in between albums, which is more more reasonable but I tend to try and write a lot of tunes and and it takes me a long time to get to the point where I feel like I have a set of tunes that I like enough to record because mm -hmm. a lot of them just end up just in the filing cabinet because they they, they don't sound good to me so, right yeah so this was one of the ones that made the cut I guess <laughs> and, and the title pushing is that from you know from the chords yeah, yeah okay. it's supposed to have sort of a kind of a drunken inebriated feel to it because on the record when we did it Mark Kelso, uh, who played drums, came up with a way to be able to suggest that the beat was a half half a beat away from where it mm -hmm. is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So that so I like those rhythmic illusions, uh, and in some more modern players like uh, Chris Potter and some people who come up with tunes that have a suggestion of a certain meter, whereas the meter is actually somehow less complex than it appears mm. uh, because of that rhythmic illusion. Right, right. Yeah. I hear that in hip hop a lot too. Yeah, where they start on like the the next beat or something like that and for the first for the intro you just have no idea what's going on when the verse comes in yeah exactly that. yeah yeah all right let's do it <laughs> oh 
earlier yes <laughs> true that's twisted man that's twisted in a, in a great way, in a great way. It's beautiful. um all right so tell me about this uh new album tell me about the the players you got who do you got on this uh, new record this is sort of a double band record um something that we've been working on since december uh, the first session we did was with uh, my toronto band uh dave restivo Mark Kelso and Mike Downs, we've been working together for a few years now, and they were also my last album. Mm -hmm. um, and we did another session in May to try and complement that. I wrote a bunch of new tunes uh, because we had the opportunity to work uh, with the great Will Kennedy on drums, uh, who came in and played. Uh, we did four tunes with that band and four tunes with the other band. So it was on the, on the May session, it was myself, Dave Restivo again, Rich Brown on bass, and Will Kennedy on the drums. Wow. Yeah, it was it was a, a enormous pleasure to work with all of those guys, uh, but I especially will because I I don't know if I'll ever get a chance to to make another record with him. Right. Uh, because he's from Houston and he's touring extensively with the Yellow Jackets as he's been for for years now. Mm. So I was very lucky to get the opportunity to have him in. He came in about a day early, and we did we did a, a full day in the studio, no rehearsal, just came in and 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 he just knocked it out of the park. Wow. Um, and he, he's a trooper because it took him about two hours to get from U of T to Canterbury Studios on uh, King and Dufferin because there was a marathon that morning. Oh. And uh, it was a complete nightmare. And he just leapt out of the cargo van with a volunteer who had driven him there, grabbed the drums. They were brand new. I mean, they were bred, just had heads put on them that morning. Oh my gosh. Set him up in the studio, and the first take out of the gate was unbelievable. It was like wow. he had just, you know... Somebody said, those are road chops, you know, yeah. when, you, when you've had the opportunity to just play in whatever situation and make any drum kit work and sound like you instantly. Yeah. You know, some, some folks can do that and he's one of those, one of those people. So, and, and just a, just a super guy, you know, very straightforward, uh, extremely well prepared and a great attitude. I mean, all of those guys, I can say that about, but because I'd never had an opportunity to work with Will before, it was, um, it was a, a real treat. Mm, mm. And I'd be, you know, personally, if I had a two-hour drive like that across, like, a very small part of Toronto, I'd be so pissed off by the time I got to the studio, I probably yeah. wouldn't perform well. But Well, and I mean, but it's it's one of those situations where I think you see some so many of those great, I mean, we call them studio musicians or whatever kinds of musicians who worked as side persons with so many groups. You know, it, you, you can always tell when somebody has the right attitude. It just makes so much of a difference in the studio because you know there are certain things that are outside of your control there, there's there's no possible way that we could have predicted uh, we knew that there was going to be traffic but mm. we, we had no idea it was going to none of us could have predicted it would take two hours to get a distance that would take 15 minutes yeah and it just shows his professionalism to say that look you know he's going to show up and he's going to do his absolute darnest to get it right mm. and no matter what the circumstance there's nothing to be upset about there's no he had no control over that at all so i think it's a good lesson for for all of us to sort of, you know, take those life bumps in stride when we're musicians and, and just, you know, 
appreciate what we have mm-hmm. and the Suck opportunities. It up. Yeah, yeah, and totally. just just enjoy the moment, you know, when it comes, <laughs> however long it takes to get there. <laughs> and um, it seems like in your compositions, you think a lot about what you want from the drums. Yes, you know. Yes, I do. Uh, I think I always kind of in my mind start there. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of my compositions will probably start out with a rhythmic sort of groove in my head mm-hmm. that, that hasn't got a harmony uh, set to it yet. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I know a few of my compositions that I, I just sort of sequenced or, or you know, uh, laid down a, a little sequence track in my, in my computer. It's usually starting with drums. Um, and then, the, then there comes the bass line and then comes the, you know, the, the comping or the melody, you know, one of those two. Mm-hmm. Um, for this record in particular, I actually sequenced all the tracks that we were doing with Will and Rich and, and Dave uh, in advance. And that was actually part of my writing process, which is a little different than the way that I've done it in the past. Usually I'll write the tunes on paper and mm-hmm. then put them into finale and then they're more or less done and I can revise them. But while I was writing these tunes, even before they were finished, I put in eight bars here, eight bars there into the sequencer. Mm-hmm. And that actually changed the outcome for me, which was, which was new. And I, and mm-hmm. I appreciated having the technological support. So I laid down, yeah, you know, basic sort of synth drum beats and, and piano voicings and stylistic bass lines and then put in a, mm-hmm. you know, cheesy sounding saxophone sound and, uh, right. in, the, in GarageBand or Logic, uh, whatever I had access to. And that, and that was, I think, helpful for the guys because mm. obviously, without having any rehearsal, it's nice to have an oral, you know, perspective as to what the music should sound like, and mm-hmm. and and, uh, and and that helped. But it really helped me write. It was great. Cool. And so, f- form-wise, were you pretty sure of like the lengths and of everything, you know, and the the exact f- form of the compositions, like how long the solos were, and that all that kind of thing going in? Not really. Not really. I, yeah. I had an idea as to who would be playing on each tune. Um, and some of the tunes were a lot more structured in terms of having a ton of written material, mm-hmm. which is a little different from some of my earlier records too, where most of it is improvised and there's a there's a little bit of a head out to head in head out kind of thing. But in several of the compositions on this record, it was more along the lines of maybe sixty forty or seventy thirty, you know, written versus improvised. So that kind of limits you a little bit because if you know that you've got, I don't know, five minutes worth of written material. Uh, unless I want a 10-minute or a 12-minute track, uh, mm-hmm. then it really does kind of limit, you know, the the, the number of solos you can have or, mm-hmm. the, or the kinds of forms. So, so in in a sense, I guess I had a general idea, but I hadn't mapped it out minute by minute. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the tracks, like the last record, tend to be over six minutes, six to eight or nine minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and thankfully, you know, the the the, the folks on the radio stations uh, have have still played them which is wonderful right they always say that you gotta try to keep short stuff short right? yes yeah, yeah yeah and 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 i have heard that but but thankfully they've enjoyed the the record and 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 they and they've played some of the tunes which is great it's fantastic yeah that's great so um d- this kind of split between um through composed and uh and improvised was this a choice going into the record or is this sort of like what you've been just what's been coming out of your head lately i think it's more the latter yeah mm-hmm. uh and and it was also just trying to hear you know, in both cases for both bands, trying to hear the specific sounds of the players. Mm. Uh, and I tend to write for players, at drummers in particular, I think. Um, and I know that the compositions that I wrote for Mark Kelso in the, in the first half and the ones for Will in the second half were, were definitely hearing what what they can what they can do or what I know I've heard them do or sort, right. sort of a, their vibe, right? I, I didn't want to... 
I didn't want to uh, try and do a bad Will Kennedy imitation when I was, you know, thinking of this stuff, but just understanding kind of his feel and his vibe, knowing all those Yellow Jackets records that he's played on over the years, I tried to write something that still sounded like my own voice, but had his voice driving the bus mm. a little bit. Interesting. You know, it's it's a difficult it's a difficult split because I think if I'd really if I hadn't been paying attention to that, I think it probably could have come off as a bad Yellow Jackets record. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. Uh, because that's that that was right. the first band that, <laughs> that I. Would be bad. <laughs> yeah, no, it would be, and it would be. They it would be, be the be, same with any artist, though, to trying to do a parody of or like trying to, you know, emulate someone else too much. Exactly. Leads to, you can never be that other person. Right? No, nor would I want to. But I think I also try to be conscious of what you know what I end up imitating consciously or unconsciously. It's shocking sometimes when I kind of listen back to the stuff that I've written and I think. Did I just get that from my head, or did I really get that from somewhere else? And 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 I try to make sure that the the latter is not the case, you know, too much because I mean we all borrow chord progressions and and you know snippets of melodies from people, but you know beyond a certain point it, it is yeah uh, it, it, it when it goes beyond that limit of imitation, it, it there's a there's a there's an area there that you don't want to cross as an artist because then it becomes someone else's work and you don't mm -hmm. you don't want to I mean both from a legal perspective and just from a pure musical perspective you don't want to you don't mm. want to tread over that ground so i um yeah i tried to be conscious of that i tried to be aware of that and still write things that felt like my own harmonic language um and melodic language i, I also too i think when i was trying to write these tunes tried to write for the saxophone in a way that i wasn't used to playing um which was important i think some of the mm. tunes that i wrote just straight from my head to uh, to paper, I deliberately tried to write some intervallic combinations that I hadn't been working on, mm. you know, just just so I could get out of my own headspace. Huh. Um, I do the same thing with keys, you know. I I I wrote a one of my first record. I wrote a C minor blues, and at the end of it, I I said, there are a lot of C minor blueses in the world. Mm -hmm. Let's change it, and it ended up being in B, which is you know. B minor, which is for for baritone and alto saxophone, not necessarily the friendliest key, but I thought, let's do it, you know. So I, I try to write things, some things that I know are really going to challenge me to move into a new space that's slightly uncomfortable or mm. really uncomfortable. Mm. And do you find creating those kind of situations transforms you as a player? Like, is that an effective way to? Uh... Yeah, both 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 temporarily and and in the long term, I think it's it's always. Uh, good for me to, I mean, I enjoy pushing myself because I think, you know, both of us, you know, know the experience of being in an environment where people are pushing you and driving you in a school setting, for instance, where mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, players end up um, is wonderful. And I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to be in a school setting in several different places and study with great people and have students driving me and pushing me and, you know, to, to, to grow as an artist because you can really grow a lot in that space. But when you get out of that, you have to find something on a day-to-day -day basis to push you. And, and you know, it, it, it's, I love the challenge of getting someone else's music together. I love it mm -hmm. when somebody calls me and says, I got this, you know, we're playing this big band or this small group uh, stuff, and it's really hard. And my first response is generally awesome. You know, mm -hmm. I love the challenge of, 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 of rising to that occasion and playing really hard stuff. But when I'm writing my own stuff, I want to have that same feeling. Mm. And... And and I can I'm the only person who can do that. Right, right. So um, so I like uh, I like pushing myself to that, which is why I like you know writing off of the saxophone because I feel like if I just wrote on the saxophone I would revert to 
familiar sounds. Mm-hmm. Probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have the same thing with guitar. My fingers have a bunch of stuff that they want to do. Yep. And uh, piano, I find, like you were saying, is so I find so useful to like get out of my head or get out of my fingers. I guess you could say. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I find that sometimes playing piano to to me from as a harmonic instrument will find some ways to translate it to the saxophone, you know, in a different way. Because like I was uh, playing earlier, there's a piece that, that's on this new record called Gravity that has a Bach inspiration in mm-hmm. a way. And I take so much inspiration from Bach and playing the Bach cello suites, that's going to be my music stand for the rest of my life probably. Mm-hmm. Because his way of being able to take a essentially a harmonic concept or a chordal idea, turn it into an arpeggio, and and have it have a shape and a form and a and a motion a forward motion that you know you 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 take a chord and you put it on a single line instrument there's you can't play I, mean, I can't play a six note chord on saxophone I can barely play a two note chord if I'm if I'm lucky mm-hmm. uh, but his way of being able to take those what I would consider harmonic shapes and make them into something that's linear is very inspirational for me it's something I strive you know to 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 towards and so. When I'm playing things at the piano quarterly, sometimes I'll try to translate those onto the instrument. In a, but the only way I can do that is to make a melody out of it because I can't play chords, obviously. So, mm-hmm. so that informs my playing too. Cool. And I was wondering if you could talk about some of your other influences uh, musically. Influences musically, a lot of it is. I mean, I think from 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 my upbringing as a piano player, like I said, um, not just Bach, but. 18th the 19th century, uh, you know, the Romanticists, Impressionists into the 20th century, Debussy, Chopin, mm-hmm. uh, Ravel, Stravinsky, uh, Bartok. Uh, lately, I've been listening to a, a lot of uh, uh, Bartok uh, string quartets uh, and uh, trying to examining those harmonically. Um, and uh, so that's the pianistic influence that I'll always kind of, I feel like, take, take a lot of value from. From a saxophone perspective, I mean, it's Coltrane, mm. Sonny Rollins, more tenor players than baritone players because I think that was just home base for me as as a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, more contemporary players like Bob Minster with the Yellow Jackets. When mm. I heard them as a as a high school kid, their records were amazing to me because they had such a wide variety of songs on one album. Some that were really accessible to me, and some that could be, you know, quote unquote, smooth jazz radio mm-hmm. friendly, you know, hits. And others that were completely in outer space in the mm. same record, mm-hmm. and that just seemed normal to me because I didn't know any different when I was 14 years old. But um, I think that that band in particular was one of those influences that was so heavy for me because there was stuff on there that I could access immediately mm. and understand, and there was stuff from on the same records that just I had absolutely no idea what was going on. Mm, and I feel like that's rare today. Uh, I feel like we feel the need to do one thing really well. Yeah. You know, we're all specialists, you know. But yeah. to see a band like going back and forth through genres and yeah. just define what the uh, you know the CD catalogs would like you to do, you know, that's pretty amazing. Yes, yeah. and that they've maintained that trajectory for 30 years now. Mm. I mean, that band is formed in the early 80s, and they're still making records and and doing new stuff and touring. Mm. And just the fact that they're they're together, much less making creative music and writing collaboratively. You mm-hmm. know, writing as a group. That's something I've never experienced, but, but yeah, I always take inspiration from people who who manage to to move in so many different directions. You know, on the same album. I mean, from a pop perspective, I mean, we could say Sting. You know, for sure. 
um, Stevie Wonder, you know, mm-hmm. songs in the key of life. I mean, the, some of those gear changes on that record are just so unbelievably out of the blue that I can't, I can't even, I wouldn't even ever conceive of doing some, some of the left turns that he does on, on one single album. Mm. Uh, Steely Dan, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the balance of pop grooves with really sophisticated angular harmony that doesn't really make much sense you know that it, mm-hmm. it but it has its own logic to it mm-hmm. uh, those those are some of the, the groups you know from a pop side that i think had that versatility you mm-hmm. know that seemed to appeal to a broad range of audiences but they're sophisticated too mm. mm-hmm. now uh, in terms of grappling with that kind of harmony um do you have any advice that you give to saxophonists on on studying harmony because you have a, you have an advantage because you're a great pianist mm-hmm. as well and uh, I know from being a sideman that sometimes you get a chart uh, from a saxophonist and the melody will be amazing but the chords will be like what is what are they thinking what do they mean but when I play your chart like I know what you mean it's like clearly I know what to do I know what you mean it's very clear right you know? so how do you get non-chordal playing saxophonists into that (laughs) how do you help them with that um well aside from getting them to have a fundamental knowledge of the piano which i you know i'm pretty biased about it that's an important concept but i think you know i think i think that if anything saxophone players or horn players uh, should have a working knowledge of a chordal instrument like the piano say a ranger's piano or whatever you want to call it to Mm -hmm. be able to play basic root and guide tone lines and play maybe the melody or elements of the melody really slowly to the point where they can they can hear it all right mm-hmm. because that's what a chordal instrument gives you it gives you all of those elements at the same time it gives you the harmony it gives you the foundation it gives you the inner parts of the chords it gives you the top it gives you above the top it and it gives you the rhythm right so when i try to learn tunes i mean uh, i'll i'll say i'll say it another way i would advise them to learn the piano from that perspective and learn how to you know, play the different parts of, of the, the melody and the harmony slowly, mm-hmm. and then try and learn tunes the same way, really, on the saxophone, for instance, if they don't have access to the piano or they're learning a tune for the first time on the piano. Um, for instance, like, a, you know, you, you gave me a bunch of tunes to, to check out you know, for this gig that we're playing this weekend. My process there is I'm going to go to the recordings, I'm going to listen to the source material whenever that's possible, but then when I get on my horn and try to learn it, I'm really trying to think of everything in the melody as it relates to the harmony Mm. all the time, Mm -hmm. because that's a mental hook for me. Then it doesn't just become lick plus lick plus lick plus lick, and then we got a set of changes that we got to blow over. Um, To me, establishing that really deep connection between melody and harmony and rhythm and form means that I have to think about all those things at the same time, even if I have to play a melody really, really slowly. Um, so the things that I talk about as a theory teacher, you know, learning the melody and numbers, learning Roman numerals, learning the functions of the chords, learning the, you know, uh, how this turnaround compares to the turnaround of the other tune, where does the flat six lead to, does it go back to the five, does it go back to one? All those little bits of terminology that we, we talk about in, in a class like music theory, are nice kind of mental hooks that I try to use when I'm learning a tune so that I'm not just learning the melody of the tune and then treating the harmony as a, a separate thing. Uh, so, I mean, it, it, you know, when I'm trying to learn a tune, I try to put those elements together. No matter how tonal or atonal or outer spacey it is, I try to figure out what those connections are so that the, mm. the melody has a meaning uh, within a context. Mm. Always. Okay. 
Cool. And uh, I was also wondering, as a, as an improviser, I, like I I see the guitar when I hear melodies. I see I visualize the I see the notes on the guitar basically. Yeah. Uh, but your piano, your saxophone. Yeah. So I, what what's it like being in Charantha's head when he's playing? Like, what what do you see in your head when you play the saxophone? I see lovely, pretty clouds. And, um, no, I uh, I always learn. I try to learn. Actually, I try to learn a melody on the piano first mm -hmm. every time. You know, if I can. I mean. I learn it from the recordings first if I can mm -hmm. and then try and play by ear on the piano with a harmony at the same time mm -hmm. as slowly as I need to to get it and then I translate it onto the horn but yeah I, I think I'm more more often than not thinking in concert when I'm playing a, uh, a, a saxophone mm -hmm. um, and that also helps me to get between alto and baritone and tenor and soprano which are you know different transpositions obviously mm -hmm. uh, and I've gotten so used to that active transposition now that if somebody gives me a concert sheet I can more or less quickly unless it's a super complicated head be able to you know play it re relatively easily you know in, in, in E flat um, but that's just something that you know I, transposing instruments have to work on but I find that if I think in concert and start with the piano that if I have to move and play it on tenor or on baritone, mm -hmm. it, it, it does seem to still kind of move move in concert for mm. me. Um, cool. And I also think about I also think about intervallically the shapes that are in the melody. If it's a bop head in particular, uh, or something that has a lot of chromatic movement, where each little segment of the melody begins with respect to the chord. But then there's that contextual thing again. Is it the third? Is it the fifth? Et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But yeah, more more or less, I'm thinking in concert. But I'm thinking functionally. Right, yeah. right, cool. Yeah, me too. I'll look there. Nice. Sure. I mean, it's built that way. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, do you want to maybe play another tune? Yeah. What uh, What do you feel like? Maybe let's do the uh, the long goodbye. All right. Beautiful. Newer folky kind of tune that I wrote this past summer in Ireland. Ah. And has this has anyone heard this? Ah, uh, yeah, we played it a few times live. Yeah, and we recorded it in December, and nobody's heard that yet. But uh, yeah, we've workshopped it a little bit in the quartet. Great. I just think there might be a th there's a third page. There we go. Yes, the infamous third page. Yeah. So you'll blow over the first two A's, and then I'll play the first two A's again, and then we'll go on to the bridge. Okay, cool. And uh, the long goodbye. What were you saying goodbye to when you wrote this? Uh, nothing. Actually, this tune was named by an audience member. Oh. So <laughs> I just uh, we played it on we played it at the old mill in right. August, and somebody came up and said the long goodbye, and I said great, beautiful. So I have I have an inkling to name it. My wife also suggested standing still, which is which is uh, this is probably going to be the last tune on the record, and there's a, a reference to because the record is tentatively titled Momentum. A lot of the tunes on the album have references to themes from science and uh, physics and you know biology and centrifugal force and momentum and and inertia and these kinds of things and gravity and uh, this one called standing still is a sort of a reference of you know the absence of those forces mm. uh, and so that may end up be the final title Cool, cool. Well, it's definitely a goodbye song, though. I would definitely agree with your audience member that says right. that. It sounds like, see ya. <laughs> All right. Nice.
Countryside-ish. Yeah. I, I was thinking as we were playing that that I, I think uh, another person that falls into that bag of artists that I was talking about earlier, obviously, is Pat Metheny. And I think uh, some of those uh, trio records and solo records that he's done probably seeped in there somewhere. And the mm -hmm. influence of a folky or a tune like this, you know, I just, I absolutely am astounded by the breadth of his artistry in mm. every possible situation. I mean, I you know, you could hear him at Massey Hall or you can hear him in the grocery store. And I have heard him in the grocery store and it all sounds like it works. Yeah, yeah, totally. 
I mean, harmonically, it seemed it felt like you maybe were borrowing a little bit of some of his ideas, like those sus yep. over the third, and yep. and I love the uh, the tonic chord over the five chord. I mean, that's just gospel right there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think I think there's yeah there's there's a little little bit of that in in, in a few of my tunes. Yeah, that gospel influence from I don't know Basie Thad Jones, mm. um, all kinds of places. But oh yeah, yeah, great. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about. Um, uh, what you've been doing as an improviser lately, uh, in terms of what you've been working on, um, I'm sure what you work on as an improviser has changed much over the years. But wh where are you at right now? Like, sort of, what's the character of your practice? The character of my practice. I mean, mostly when I'm working on improvisation, I'm working on um, I'm working on my own tunes. I'm working on new harmonic kind of sounds that I haven't gotten into. Uh, and, and again, when I'm writing. When I'm writing certain compositions that I feel like are stretching me, you know, melodically, I try to work some of those intervallic ideas into my playing, you know, as an improviser, which is, it's hard because I, um, that just takes a while, you know. Um, I think I, I've heard this from many, you know, a great musician, even from, I think, your interview with Reg last week where he was talking about how working on an idea just takes, you know, quite a significant amount of time before it actually shows up on the bandstand. Mm -hmm. um, and there's this great um, lecture from Michael Brecker in the 80s at North Texas, um, a video lecture where he talks about that very same thing, where it takes months before something actually appears for him. So, I mean, a lot of stuff for me these days is working on weaknesses of mine, like uh, playing really blazing fast tempos mm -hmm. uh, and trying to improvise fluently fluidly in that in that sense um, tunes with really uh, challenging harmonic progressions for, for me uh, like giant steps are those those things are in part of my daily or weekly routine and frankly they appear in too many facets of my life that that I'd rather they not right. I, I often you know if I'm agitated walking around during the day or I wake up sometimes in the middle of the night and I'm I'm practicing giant steps in my head it's really annoying Wow um, because it's sort of a, a lifelong pursuit for me because I, I just feel like I'll never fully master a tune like that but uh, you know that's so that you know playing challenging chord, chord progressions for me and pushing the tempo to mm -hmm. get it to the point where it really sits well. Um, working on certain kinds of intervallic exercises that are wide leaps, mm -hmm. because I feel like those are not a natural uh, go-to for mm -hmm. me. Again, um, I wrote a tune, speaking of giant steps and intervallic leaps, I wrote a tune for this record called uh, In Absentia, which is on the same day, I think, that I wrote The Long Goodbye sitting on a couch in Ireland. Um, and again, sort of straight from my head to paper because I knew that if I tried to, you know, work it out on my instrument, it wouldn't come out the same way. But it's all, um, it's all about wide, wide intervallic leaps. And, um, and I'll play it for you slowly. So just that you can hear okay. that this wouldn't be, you know, just solo. You, you, you probably get a sense that I'm trying to focus on intervallic leaps that are bigger than a fifth, sometimes a seventh or ninth. And I'll play it really slowly. Um, so all those things will be apparent.
Mm. And that's the tune. And I'm mean, playing that sort of rubato so that you know you can hear the the, the mm -hmm. leaps in particular. Um, but in time, if I can do it do it well. One, two, one, two, You know, when I wrote that tune, I knew that that would be weird for me mm -hmm. because that's just, you know, those intervallic leaps within a phrase that go way up or way down, it's just not intuitive language for me. Mm. So I had to sort of work work that up. But then from an improvisational perspective, I mean, just to play the head, you know, that's that was a challenge for me to get it up there. But then to work that in uh, to an improvisation, I tried practicing rubato lines, you know, even slower where I was taking certain kind of intervallic shapes and moving them around. So major sevenths, mm -hmm. minor sevenths, minor ninths, and trying to hint at the progression, you know, the same way. But just doing it really slowly so that I could be honest with myself about the harmony and the melody. Right? Mm. So thinking of giant steps very, very slowly. That's maybe two choruses. So, right. so, and again, I'm mean, hopefully you know some of the harmony is apparent there, but I'm trying to work on where those those intervals, not just sit on the horn, but actually resolve to to make something of a melody. Because at the end of the day, I don't want it to just be an exercise where I want it to actually mm. translate it into something that I could do on the bandstand. Mm -hmm. So sometimes, times I will do that. I think when we did this last uh, week at the Markham Jazz Fest, I think I played. This tune is a solo intro because it is something that I've just been practicing to, to right. try to, you know, set up the, the tune. Mm -hmm. um, so the tune kind of becomes a bit of a, a laboratory for you to to work out a new concept yeah. and then bring it into your improvisation. Exactly. Right, yeah. right. So the tune is kind of like an ideal, like, oh, I'd love to sound like this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and also because I didn't know what it would sound like, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. when I'm writing from my head to, to paper. It's, it, I find it to be reasonably accurate, but when I get it to the piano and I try to f figure out what I've actually written, there's always some stuff that comes out a little differently from the way that I conceived it, which is, uh, you know, just, just whatever my ears are, are lacking. So I, I, uh, I, I was fairly certain that I knew what the tune would sound like when I wrote it from my head to paper, but then when I got it down to the piano and I, and I looked at it and I thought, okay, that's a little different, mm -hmm. but it, 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 um, it does, yeah, become a, become a, 
a workshop mm. in a way. Mm. But I mean, you know, no matter how abstract it is, you know, at the start, like I said, I wanted to make it feel musical. I wanted to have a emotion. I want somebody who knows nothing of John Coltrane to be able to mm-hmm. take something from it and not just say, oh, that sounds like a an etude or right gosh oh that crazy jazz yeah 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 there's got to be a story behind it and i and i want to try to make that apparent even with the tunes that are more complex than the long goodbye or something which is probably something that is is very you know harmonically accessible to a Mm. lot of people well sometimes i feel like process is sort of like uh it kind of just puts you in a in a like you know it's hard to look at a blank page and have the whole world at your fingertips to write like yeah. but to have a concept and write to a concept kind of puts you in a bit of a box yes but to be creative and emotive in that within those bounds i yes. mean that can be very inspiring i find well yeah and, and that's a conversation to be honest i mean that i have with my students you know annually uh when it comes to a class like music theory where you know final project for them is to write a tune but of course it's not just any tune it has to be a tune that exhibits concept a or concept b or something that is within a certain kind of box and i always tell them i say look i'm not going to put any more restrictions on you that i would ever put on myself like maybe two big concepts you know parameters like it's got to be you know 32 bars or in that range and it's got to have this you know or pick one of these four kind of harmonic concepts that we've worked on from the year and show me what you can do mm. because if if i were to put more restrictions on on than that I feel like I would have a hard time making music out of it. I wouldn't have a hard time fulfilling the requirements of the assignment. But that's not the point. I want them to have tunes that they're going to want to play with their bands because it's mm-hmm. this is real. This is not, you know, it's not fake stuff we're talking about here. It's mm-hmm. it's all these concepts have a real world application and I want them to have something in hand that they actually feel like represents themselves. It's hard. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, having some parameters to, to work with to to quote unquote restrict yourself are yeah they're very helpful because mm. they can help you get to something right mm. and that's an interesting approach to music theory to have them compose to use these concepts in compositions like I don't remember doing that when I studied theory no yeah oh, okay. I'm not sure if we did that hmm. maybe in composition well, but I mean I remember uh, I remember Mike Downs you know who was my my theory teacher uh, I don't know if he was yours but I well, think he was, was yeah, yeah okay yeah. we did we did some writing exercises where we had to apply those concepts with like smaller shorter tunes mm-hmm. and I and I uh, and I, I think I learned a lot from that I mean there's there's a I teach another class a pedagogy class which is all you know about music education and we talk about learning theories and Bloom's taxonomy and all this stuff and, and these you know these concepts that 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 can be applied to learning any sort of subject and you know, at the top of this revised Bloom's taxonomy, which is a very complicated, kind of hierarchical method of, of examining, assessing learning, at the top of that pyramid is creativity, because it's the ultimate example that you've actually learned something. Is if you if you know the concepts beyond their bare bones, this is a major triad, this is a minor triad, this is the name of the Dorian mode, etc. This is an A A B A form. Form is a sort of one step above the basics because you have to take smaller parts and make them into something that is a group right mm-hmm. but then you take all of that stuff you compare you know aaba tune with another aaba tune and and that helps you learn but at the end of the day if you really know something it shows if you can create something that is expressive of you and also shows the concept so that's that's why i do it mm-hmm. Be- and do you find that process can be achieved in a one-year course 
Um, sure. Like, do you find that people get stuck in a certain place, a certain part of that? I mean, that's very interesting because you really do have to internalize things to a very yes. kind of deep level yes. to get to the creativity part. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think people do get stuck, and I have students who come to me, you know, in the process, which I love, because um, I, I, I absolutely love it when a student comes into my office and says, I don't know what to do here. Mm. My, my job is, at that point, is to kind of do what I would do with myself. I look at what they've done, and I say, what's the story that you started to tell? Mm. Let's maybe, since it's a short tune, let's maybe try and tell one story instead of two or three, because there just probably isn't time Right. Um, and it's even cooler if a student comes to me and says, you know, this was the emotional inspiration or something behind it. Then it's some, in some ways even easier for me to say, okay, so you know that. Let's continue that and develop it and, and, and shape it. Um, so, yeah, I try to, I try to in, in, encourage them to continue along the lines of where they've already begun to, to, to go, you know, because that's, for me, that would be the way to do it. Especially if it's a shorter tune, right? Mm-hmm. We're not writing... You know, we're not writing symphonies, obviously, you know, in, in, a, in, in any of these courses. We're writing very small, very contained mm-hmm. works. So I try to encourage them to develop one idea really thoroughly mm-hmm. and, and tell a convincing story that way, which is the same advice that I have for a lot of young improvisers, right? It's the, it's the, it's the, the curse of having one too many good ideas is, is that you want to play them all the time. And, and I, I get that. That's, mm-hmm. I, you know, I struggle with that still. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, you hear an idea, you want to plug it in somewhere and maybe the best choice is to just stick with what you've got and continue and and maybe not maybe you know in my own tunes like i said maybe more than half of the tunes that i write never see the light of day because they're i think they're terrible but they start they start with an idea that think i think okay this is an idea this is mm-hmm. an actual idea um and then they might just end up in the filing cabinet but they lead to something right hopefully that will be better right so they call that throwing crap at the wall yeah, I guess spaghetti at the wall and seeing spaghetti at the wall. Sure. But but yeah, it's all part of the process, right? And that's and that is frustrating sometimes because you put time and energy into writing, uh, just as you put time and energy into practicing improvisation. And some days it just ain't happening. Mm. It's like mm. that's really frustrating, but it is a, the reality of life, human life. It, it absolutely. is absolutely. Yeah. You got good days and bad days, and and if 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 anything, on days like that, I try to sort of takes all this in the fact even though I'm sort of you know gritting my teeth and saying oh man I spent all this time with this tune and it just sucks but mm. sometimes some days all all I'll be able to do in that situation is just say it's time to go back and practice some technique mm. and, and that's I know that that's going to be I mean I do that I do that daily anyway mm-hmm. but if I'm if I'm really stuck in that perspective I'll say let's go back and do some nice long tones and overtones and meditate on on the sound of the instrument, and right. I know that at the end of the day, there's only so bad that that's going to be because that's one or two variables, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so there's there's wow. some comfort in knowing that it's a constant, and that it's it's you know there's not too much decision making involved in mm-hmm. that. It's like, here's what I've got to do. I've done this a million times, and it's it's going to be cool. I think that's wonderful advice. That's really nice. Like, because uh, I know I know from getting into ruts that going back to that fundamental, just basic, playing the guitar, just touching the instrument, just yeah. can really help me get out of those kind of situations. You know? I, I always encourage students. I know I've had conversations with students, like the private students, who have said, "Man, I can, you know, what what do I practice?" And I say, "At some point in in your day, practice something that you you know you just enjoy." 
Mm. And that, I mean, technique is obviously good, but you can enjoy technique if you, you know, I, I, I enjoy it, you know, most of the time. Um, or just play a song that doesn't require much cognition, just something that you know, something that you like. Mm. You cool. know. Right, well, I want to ask you about your experience as a student, because you've had a rather <laughs> large experience, as yeah. a, a long experience as a student. And uh, maybe just talk about what, what you've gotten from school, um, you know, because there's, there's always a debate going, like some guys are like, no, you got to learn on the bandstand, school's not a good thing. Yeah. Or some people are like, well, school is amazing, and uh, I, I'm kind of in the amazing yeah. kind of category. Yeah. But uh, I'd be interested to hear uh, what you kind of learned from school. Well, and where you went to school. <laughs> I, I should preface it by saying that most of the decisions that I made about where I went to school were around private teachers. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's where the classroom meets the bandstand. Mm. You know, I, I, I don't buy the argument that the, that the, that the, uh, that the, the uh, learning from the bandstand is the only way, because I think if you, if you are involved and you ask the right questions and you're paired with somebody who, who cares and, 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 and understands how to teach well in that setting, you know, it is like the bandstand. It's the old mentorship model of getting getting with an older musician. I mean, that's why it's like I went to Humber mostly to study with Pat LaBarbera, and I'm glad that I did. And as a very large bonus, got to work with all these other great, amazing teachers, you know, who, who I learned as much from just because of the variety of their experiences and what they brought to the table. I mean, gosh, you know, Mike Downs, Mark, Mark Promain, Brian Lillis, Al Kay. I mean, they're mostly all still teaching at Hunter, which mm -hmm. is great. But I, I went to William Patterson because of Gary Smolian. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that was, a, that was an important relationship when I was at William Patterson. I went there to Eastman to study with Ray Ricker and Bill Dobbins. Um, and also because I knew that I wanted to teach as well. Mm -hmm. And that's why graduate study for me at that level was really important. Um, not just because you have a piece of paper that says, I have a doctorate, yay me, at the end of the day. Um, I try not to fly that flag too high because, frankly, I think I, I know that, you know, as a player, you are, you know, you're, your playing will speak for itself no matter what kind of paper you have or don't have. But um, I just love the opportunity to get to work with the people that I got to study with and learn from them directly from the horse's mouth. Mm. Um, you know, and from the books and courses and other, you know, things that I got to, you know, read and, and study and research peripherally and the projects that I got to work on, the tunes that I got to write, um, tunes that I was asked to write, the mm -hmm. bands that I got to, to play with and form. Um, so I think that, that that made a huge difference for me as a student, just having that mentorship piece with an older musician who I respected and admired, not just as a player, but as a teacher. Mm -hmm. um, because there's nothing like it. You sit in front of a player that you respect and that, that has clearly more life experience and playing experience than you do. And you just, you, they, they play one note and you go, okay, I got it. I, you may have heard them on a hundred records. I remember that my first lesson with Gary Smolian, I'd heard him on a bazillion albums and I, he played one note for me. And I said, Okay, I gotta go practice long tones for the next uh, week. I'll will see you. I'll see you next week. Thanks. You know. Wow. And it was it was a total revelation. But I mean, I'm sure we've all had that experience. You just you experience something live, one on one with another person, and it it can change you, right? Mm. So those those experiences of being in school were were highly shaped by certain people. 
Mm. And I know that not every student is going to have that relationship coming in. But I hope that at some point along the line they find that. Mm. With a private teacher, with a classroom teacher maybe, with an ensemble coach. with. But the private lesson experiences for me were the ones. Um, as, a, as an ensemble person, I really loved places like Humber because... They had such a diversity of musical experience that was way beyond anything that I'd ever knew existed. I there were so many genres and styles and people and and artists that I hadn't even heard of. And mm. I came to Umber and I got to listen to their music, play some of their music, and um, just be informed about the variety of music that's out there in the world. And that that is really uh, really cool, you mm. know. And, and the other, the other schools, you know, William Patterson was more in a small group jazz kind of setting, and I grew a lot in that setting because of that. Contemporary small group jazz, more traditional small group, lots of original composition. Eastman was a very small jazz program in a large classical conservatory, not unlike perhaps U of T in some of those places. Um, and so there was an interesting collaboration between musical styles there, because I had a classical background, I was able to study with a jazz piano player, Harold Danko, who had an immense knowledge of the classical tradition, as does Bill Dobbins and those guys. So to be able to pair those traditions together was great. So, I mean, that's just from my personal experience. Like, I hope that students who come through school will have that experience of being mentored by somebody who really does inspire them. You know, like I've had the good fortune to be inspired by. And beyond that, I would say that, you know, if you're in school, Take advantage of the opportunity and just work your butt off, practice, play with people that you don't know mm -hmm. and uh, and you know get to get to work with unfamiliar faces and mm -hmm. and I mean we both know this because we're sitting here about to play a gig two days from now. Mm -hmm. uh, the, it's true that you people who are in school with will be your working bandmates yeah. for the rest of your life. Yeah, we met 15 years ago, probably. Absolutely. And, Crazy. And, yeah, yeah, played together then, and we're playing together now, and mm -hmm. and those those connections are important. I would say the other thing is that, that that's pretty cool about, about being in school and out of school for a long time, and you could probably attest to this as well, is to see the directions musically that all of our classmates have gone on. Mm. Sometimes it's somewhat predictable, like if you saw them in school 15 years, you know, you would see them again and you would say, okay, I could have seen that coming. Mm -hmm. uh, but in some cases, you would have no clue that those people would be involved in a certain facet of the industry mm -hmm. or a certain style. Or, you know, maybe they're working, performing, maybe they're composing, maybe they're engineering, maybe they're producing, maybe they're working as a, you know, in the legal, musical, legal field or whatever. Mm -hmm. There's so many different ways for us to go that are all informed by our, our playing. Teachers, of course. Mm -hmm. I'm so happy to see that some of our students at Humber are now wanting to pursue teaching more seriously because they have a huge leg up being players and teachers. Mm -hmm. To know what it's like to be behind a bandstand and to be able to communicate with their words and understand the mindset of a student who's younger than you, older than you, mm -hmm. teenager, adult, whatever. Mm -hmm. I think that's great. Um, I have colleagues, you know, from my William Patterson days, who you know were jazz players, uh, to two of my colleagues, Jamil Roberts, uh, who's a saxophone player, and Crystal Torres, who's a trumpet player. We all played together in the big band, um, and last year they were both in Grammy-nominated uh, bands because Jamil became uh, a big producer for hip-hop artists. He he produced and I think co-wrote one of Usher's songs, "Good Kisser," which is on his uh, recent wow. record. 
And Crystal has been playing trumpet in Beyonce's band for maybe, I don't know, six, seven, ten years. Um, neither of these things were happening when we were students. And I never would have predicted that those those directions would have would have come. But they're serious musicians, mm. you know, and disciplined musicians. And, and uh, you know, they have their gifts, but they've worked extremely hard and have gone these unbelievable places. And I just think, man, who knows? Mm. You know, it's so unlimited, eh? Music, it's just it really I mean, is. You can really go anywhere your imagination wants at any time. And and know? I and I, I and I and I'm glad that we're on, I mean I know that we're on this same page about this because I think I want to encourage people who are listening who might be at a place during the school year or whatever it is that they feel like, oh man, this is a drag. Mm. Because that that can happen, you know. Yeah. There's there's a great John Mayer. Um, interview or a Berkeley seminar that he gave a, a you know video that I watched years ago where he talks about the very same thing like you come November for you come first day of September and it's like everything's great everything's happening mm -hmm. and then there's that November time where it's like everything is coming down around your your head and it's tough because I think music programs are exceptionally demanding on their students musically time-wise mm -hmm. otherwise finding time to practice your own thing finding mm -hmm. time to do everything for your classes finding time to go out and get see shows finding to work at your part-time gig and make some money it's like eat and sleep eat and sleep like i see my students so exhausted sometimes oh I'm yeah just like, oh my goodness well it's hard man. no I, I i totally relate but i think at the end of the day when, when you know i hope that when they come out of the experience of having done it and having been through it that they'll see um the positive you know, effect. Like I, I have no idea what my musical output or career would be like if I hadn't been in school because I've, I, I, that wasn't my lived experience. But I just know how much I've had a chance to grow because of the great people that I got to to, to pick the brains of. You know, and and it it's made such a difference. Mm. So I just hope that in those times of trouble, the students will remember that um, it really it's it's all good. Mm. You know, for sure. For sure. Yeah, you know, I really see that, the, you know, as a the club scene has shrunk, mm -hmm. I think that school has really replaced that mentorship, that, that those opportunities for, for young musicians. Yes. You know. I, I, do, I do think that. I mean, and, and it's, it's cool. I mean, I, I do feel like when I was a musician working in, you know, when I was in, when I was in New York out playing gigs, when I was when I was doing, doing stuff outside of school or even in Toronto as a, as a student. You're right. I mean, when you're on the bandstand, nobody necessarily has to sell, tell you anything as a criticism or a, a an opportunity for you to grow. There is no need for them to be mentors. Now, I don't know if that, that's because of school or not, mm -hmm. but, you know, when, when the, in a city like Toronto, if you're not cutting it, they don't have to tell you anything. If somebody hires you for a gig and you're not making it, they will just pick up the phone and call somebody else and they will never call you again and that's it. Yeah. And it's a harsh reality, right? Because mm -hmm. sometimes you maybe want to know why you weren't cutting the mustard. I've had those experiences on the bandstand where I I knew that something in the air told me that I wouldn't be getting the call again and I was mm -hmm. right. But I wish sometimes that, that those band leaders had taken me aside and said, hey man, listen, this isn't working you yeah. know you've got to you got to work on this specific thing mm -hmm. but you know what they didn't have to tell me anything because mm -hmm. i was in new york there's 30 other baritone players that they could call easily mm -hmm. so that's a pressure situation uh, but you're right in school i mean it's our job to be 
articulate enough to tell the students what they're doing well and praise them when mm -hmm. things are happening and tell them specifically what they can do to be better. And that's hopefully what students come into school knowing that they're going to get. And if they don't know, they're going to learn mm. pretty quickly because it is harsh sometimes, right? But, um, but I, uh, you're right. You, you know, you can't expect older musicians uh, to tell you anything on the bandstand mm -hmm. because they don't have to. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, me and Morgan talk about this a lot that, you know, that we don't talk about stuff enough, like on the yes. bandstand and, you know, younger players, you know, we don't necessarily, it's, we often just say like, oh, sounded great, sounded yes. great, man. And maybe even if it did or it didn't, right. you know, and, and then in, if you do try to say something, it might not be received very well. People don't like to hear some, you know, Yes. but I, I think of someone like Bob Mover, Yes. Uh, at jam sessions when I was younger who would literally yell at you if you got the chord changes wrong or you got lost or something like that and just yeah. create a, almost a very hostile situation that yeah. might that would scare it off a lot of people sure but if you you know worked through it and you got back and you got stronger I mean it did make yes. you stronger it's tough love I suppose but you know but Morgan and I often talk about how we kind of miss that right you know? yes it's yeah. it's true I think I think there there is a certain reserved politeness Mm -hmm. that we often adopt on the bandstand. I mean, on that sounds great note, it's funny, this is another discussion that I have with my students, uh, you know, frequently, is, you know, how to give feedback. I, I try to make a habit of not saying sounds great to somebody if I don't actually think so. And if nice. I don't, if I don't uh, have anything good to say, then I'll just, uh, you know, I, I don't know, give them some sort of a greeting and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, I, I don't know. But I'll right. try, I'll try to, try to, Try to be honest with that because yeah. I do some, sometimes think that is actually more irritating to me as a reception of feedback that I know is insincere. Mm. I, I've encountered that many times in, in my career and I just, when I know that it's fake, mm -hmm. that just makes me really angry because I, I would much rather than ha have them say as a receiver of that, that that wasn't cool or just have them say nothing. Versus having them say, oh, yeah, man, sounds, mm. that sounds killing. And you know that they didn't think it sounded killing. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. I think totally. we need to be honest with each other or just not say anything at all. I, uh, this is going to show that I'm a nerd, but I'm suddenly thinking of the betas, the Betazoids, is that it? The uh, the telepathic species from yes. Star Trek. Deanna, Deanna They Troy. all were honest because they could all read each other's minds, right. so there was no lying in their culture. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be nice if we were all telepathic. You know? <laughs> Be an interesting world. You know? <laughs> anyway, on that nerdy note, why don't we play one more tune and okay. uh, and call it a day? Great, it's been fun. Man. Yeah. What let's, do you want to do? Uh, let's do "I'll Be Gone." All right, I'll be gone. Maybe we'll just do kind of two choruses. Okay. Head and head and head. Beauty. Short and sweet.
Beautiful. Yeah, man. Thank you. Thank you for chatting with me today. My pleasure. All right. Okay. So where are you playing coming up? So uh, on September 19th, I'm playing with the Traveling Wallberries at the Pilot Tavern. Uh, that's a three baritone group uh, with myself, Chris Gale, uh, Alex Dean, uh, Morgan Childs, Jeff McLeod, and Andy Scott on guitar. So organ trio and. plus, yeah, three baritones is kind of fun and wacky. Um, September 29th and 30th, I'm at the Rex uh, with Dan Jameson, great writer, uh, New York. Um, October 9th, I'm with the Nancy Walker Quintet at the Rex. Um, really interesting group. Nancy's compositions are, are some of my favorites uh, anywhere. Uh, it's worth hearing. Uh, and uh, on October 23rd, I'm going to be uh, with the Order of Canada Band, which is a band of many Order of Canada recipients, Guido Basso, Don Thompson, Dave Young, um, Terry, Terry Clark, Clark yes, Woo. yeah, uh, with a big band of all Yamaha artists uh, and Jens Lindemann on trumpet, and uh, that's going to be at Kerner Hall. And uh, look for a CD release for this album coming up in um, early 2016. Great, exciting, lots of great things happening. Yeah, all right, man. Thank you. Thank you. All right. To the Body Electric Podcast with my special guest, Sharantha Bedegay. Uh, my name's Nathan Hiltz. You can get me at www.nathanhiltz.com. And uh, if you're interested in seeing me playing out in the clubs, um, I'm going to be, let's see, I'm going to be at Duggins, uh, that's at Queen and Brock, on uh, September 9th with Chris Wallace. And I'm also going to be playing this Wednesday uh, at a jam session at the Placebo Space uh, in Etobicoke on uh, Lakeshore with a bunch of Humber students that have been doing a weekly jam session for I think over a year now. Um, thanks a lot for listening and see you next week. Bye.